0: All right, we uh, are moving on today to a new chapter in our Confession of Faith, and that chapter is chapter 31, and chapter 31, there's more on the rack back there. If anybody needs a confession, you need to get one, because we're going to spend some time in it. Does everybody have one? Okay. Yeah, grab several, Adam. Good. Okay. Everybody equipped? Great. Okay, we're on page 40, which is chapter 31. And you'll notice chapter 31 and chapter 32 both deal with the subject of eschatology. Uh, and eschatology is simply the study of last things. Um, and so <clears throat> um, chapter 31 deals with personal eschatology and chapter 32 deals with corporate or we could say final eschatology. And so chapter 31 deals with what happens to individual people at the end of their lives or at the end of the age. And then, of course, chapter 32 deals with the last judgment and the eternal state, okay? Now, let me just say a word before we launch into these two chapters. Um, Eschatology is critically important to the Christian, And the reason why is because it is the consummation and the realization of salvation. It's where salvation leads and winds up. And if you care at all about salvation, then you care intensely about eschatology. And uh, oftentimes people tend to poo-poo eschatology as being the realm of fanatics and fruitcakes. And unfortunately... Uh, There are a lot of those out there writing a lot of crazy books. Uh, The whole Left Behind series is an example of that uh, in which you can find um, everything from A to Z being said about the second coming and what's going to happen and how it all unfolds. And and so the tendency is just to be annoyed with the whole subject and and withdraw from it and not deal with it. Uh, The other thing about the subject is that it's, it's a complex subject. It's not where you can just turn to one verse and point to it and say, aha, there it is. That's, that's how it's all gonna turn out. Um, it requires a lot of, of interpretation and a lot of collation of a lot of passages. Um, however, um, it's not something that is, is beyond us and it's not something that we're incapable of doing um, because um, it has been done and done well for centuries. Uh, there's no reason why it can't be done by us as people. So, uh, we're going to be spending a long time on the subject of eschatology together because I hope to proceed through it slowly, systematically, so that we all get it and we all understand it and we all are able to, um, you know, point to the passages that demonstrate what the true scheme and system of eschatology is, both personal eschatology and also final eschatology uh, that takes place at the end of the age so this first chapter of course is far less controversial than the second one will be though the first chapter certainly introduces the second and uh, it indicates that there's just one final day of judgment there's not like you know the rapture and then a seven year period and then the second coming and then you know a thousand year period and then some rebellion and then another judgment. Um, actually, it all happens on one day. Okay. And so I think when we uh, understand the, what's, what's been traditionally called amillennialism, uh, it will make our eschatology much more simple, much more biblical, much easier to um, wrap our brains around and to understand and to be able to demonstrate and to prove. Um, So that's where we're headed, um, and that's what we'll be going through, and um, I'm not going to pull any fast ones on anybody, we're going to go as slow as we need to go uh, in order to be able to demonstrate these things. Now, having said all that, I don't profess to have uh, every answer to every question of every passage in the scripture that deals with prophecy, Um, just like I don't have every answer to every question of every passage that deals with any doctrine. Um, But you don't have to have every answer to every question on every passage to understand the major outlines of the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of justification or the doctrine of eschatology. Um, I think we can get the major framework correct and we can work on filling in and understanding the details of some of the more um, obscure passages as, as the years go by. So anyhow, um, that's what we're going to be dealing with. And the reason why we should care and put effort into it is because this is the consummation of salvation. Eric? I do. And I'm going to hand it out. It's right here. (laughs) But since I haven't gotten into the chapter yet and I'm still in my introductory comments, I haven't passed it out. (laughs) So I'm about to get there. So anyway, we're going to um, deal with chapter 31 and then, of course, chapter 32. And um, so put on your seat belts and get out your books and do your reading and, and we'll go from there. Now, some time ago, I gave as a gift to every one of you uh, a book called The End Times Made Simple uh, by Sam Waldron. Um, hopefully, by now, you've all had a chance to read that. And if you haven't, I want to encourage you to read it. And uh, for those of you who don't have a copy, I think I've given all of my copies away. Uh, I'll order some more. But of all the books I've read on eschatology, which have been a lot, I think that one does the finest job of summarizing the issues and presenting um, the data in the the simplest fashion. So The End Times Made Simple by Sam Waldron. If you haven't read it yet, uh, start reading it. Um, and I think it will help you understand a lot of the things that we'll be covering. All right. Um, I want to pass out the outline then to uh, the uh, chapter. And um, For right now, you can ignore the third page. Um, You look cold. Are you cold? You can do jumping jacks, warm up. He can't read yet, can he? We're working on it. You're working on it? Yeah. Well, better get with it. Are there three there? I think so. Is there? No, sir. No, sir? Just two? Okay, one for each of you. All right, everybody got one? All right. Okay, what we have here is the uh, outline to uh, the first uh, chapter, chapter 31. So, um, let's go through this chapter. Now, I want you to look at 1A. It says, the state of the bodies and souls of men after death. Okay, so if you were to die today, Um, in assuming the second coming isn't going to occur for a long time. Um, Paragraph one applies directly to you. Okay. It talks about what happens to people between the time they die and the second coming of Christ. Now, if you turn the page to paragraph two, it talks about the state of the bodies and souls of men, at the last day. Okay? So, 2a, which encompasses paragraphs 2 and 3, talk about what is going to happen to bodies and souls when Jesus returns. So, the first section, what happens to bodies and souls before Jesus returns? And the second point, what happens to the bodies and souls of people when Jesus returns? Okay? So, we, we could call it the intermediate state and the final state of the souls of men, okay? And when I use men, I mean women too. I'm talking about mankind, okay? All right, so let's then go through the chapter and we'll, we'll look at the outline as we go along. So uh, the first paragraph talks about the state of the bodies and souls of men after death. And so first of all, it talks about the state of their bodies after death. It says in paragraph one, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. So what happens to the bodies of people after they die? Well, we know we go to the funeral home, they're put in a coffin, they're put in a ground. And uh, we don't like to look or think about it, but those bodies rot and they eventually turn into dust and they're totally corrupted and uh, brought to to complete ruin. And um, of course, that is a picture and a parable of the destruction that people are going to experience in hell, uh, which is a state of complete ruin and destruction, not of annihilation. And we'll talk about that as we go on, because the whole doctrine of hell is something we're going to be covering as we go through this. All right, And then the state of their souls after death. It goes on to say... But their souls which neither die nor sleep, that is, they don't cease to exist, and they don't go into a state of unconsciousness, having an immortal subsistence immediately return to God who gave them. So, what happens when you die is your body, of course, goes unconscious, it ceases to have function. It begins to decay and to corrupt. Your soul, on the other hand, when it separates from your body, maintains consciousness. It doesn't die. It doesn't, that is, cease to exist. Uh, It doesn't go to sleep. Uh, It's always awake. And it immediately goes to God. Now, there are those who teach that when the soul is separated from the body, that it goes into what's called a state of soul sleep and it just stays asleep in the grave along with the body uh, until the second coming of Christ when it is awakened. That's classic Seventh-day Adventist teaching and uh, it's unbiblical. Uh, It was a problem in this day, that's why they addressed it. It has been a problem for uh, centuries. Okay, so all these souls return to God. Well, what happens to them? Well, there's two classes of them, right? It says, The souls of the righteous, that's one class, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise, where they are with Christ, and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. So the state of the souls of the righteous, as soon as they depart from the body, they they immediately are in the presence of God. They are perfected in holiness. They dwell in paradise. They live with Christ. They behold the face of God and they anticipate the redemption of their bodies. So what you have in heaven right now is a whole bunch of disembodied spirits. And there's only two people in heaven—well, three—that aren't disembodied spirits. Who are they? No, Enoch, Elijah, and yeah, Moses. No, Enoch, Elijah, and Jesus. God, Moses' body was buried; just God buried it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he appeared, but uh, his body is buried on the top of Mount Moriah, I believe it is. Yeah. Uh, But Enoch was translated into heaven, body and soul. Elijah was translated into heaven, body and soul. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ was translated into heaven, body and soul. There's three people up there who are not disembodied spirits, but uh, everyone else are disembodied spirits. And what that means is that, um, okay, right now you all have clothing on, right? Okay, when you go home and get in the shower, you take all of your clothing off and you are naked. Okay, something that was part of you has been laid aside from you and now you're disclothed. Well, the body is the clothing of the soul. Okay, and when you die, your body as it were, is taken off of your soul and it's laid down just like you take off your clothing and you lay it down, okay? And, you know, these souls then are, if you will, naked. They're unclothed, it talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And um, just as you don't feel a natural or, or proper uh, being unclothed, uh, you're more comfortable being dressed um, in the same way. Um, the souls in heaven are not comfortable, if you will, being unclothed from their bodies and they're, they're up there saying, Lord, how long? And so while the the state of souls in heaven is one of perfection and holiness, they dwell in paradise, they live with Christ, they behold the face of God. Yet, They are not complete in that they are in a state of anticipation and desire with reference to getting their bodies back and having their souls clothed with their bodies. Okay, so are the the souls in heaven happy? They are exceedingly happy, but are they perfectly content? No, they are not. Now, that doesn't mean that they're miserable, but it does mean that they're, they're in a state of anticipation and desire with reference to their future eschatology as well. That is the realization of the totality of their redemption and salvation being applied to them in the giving to them of their bodies. Caleb. Right. Right. Yeah. And I would say they are much more happy and contented in their state looking forward to their body than we are in this state looking forward to heaven. Um, I don't want to try to paint a picture of the people in heaven being, you know, as nearly as unhappy as we are, (laughs) but they're also not perfectly content either. Um, Okay. Then we have the state of the wicked in the middle of the paragraph. It says uh, at uh, footnote three, there you see the little three in the middle of the paragraph. It says, and the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. So the state of the souls of the wicked is that when they die, their soul immediately goes to God, just like ours does. But instead of being admitted into heaven, they are cast into hell. Okay. And we see that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, don't we? Now we know that this are, these are two people who are in the intermediate state because the rich man still has brothers who are alive on earth and they wouldn't be there. If the second coming had already occurred. So consequently, they're in the intermediate stage, just like we are. And so here's this rich man. He's in hell. He's conscious. He's in torment. um, And he is awaiting the judgment. So it's kind of like um, when the police arrest somebody and uh, they're brought before the judge and uh, they plead guilty and um, they're sent back to the prison and 30 days later they're sentenced and then the the the, the sentence is carried out and so you know it's not like the people in hell uh, haven't been judged just like the people in heaven haven't been judged Um, there is going to be a final judgment but the disposition of these people in their respective places is in anticipation and foreknowledge of how that judgment is going to turn out for them. And it's not like some of the people in heaven, when they come to the final judgment, God's going to, oh, we made a mistake to have you up here. You should be down there. Or some of the people in hell, oh, we made a mistake having you down there. Now you can come up here. Um, There's not going to be any change of their state, except that those who are in heaven will receive their bodies and they will go into the new heavens and the new earth which will be the change from heaven where they are now to the new heavens and the new earth, where our ultimate eschatology will be. And with reference to the damned, uh, they're in hell now and their eschatology will be that they will receive their resurrected bodies too. And their eschatology is that they'll wind up in the lake of fire. Okay. Cause death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. It says in Revelation. Okay, so um, this then is the intermediate state. Now, there's an interesting statement at the end of paragraph one. It says, um, beginning at, at footnote four in the paragraph, it says, Beside these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. Now, what they're doing there is they're, they're um, making a polemical statement against purgatory. The Catholics say there's three places right? There's hell, there's heaven, and there's purgatory. And purgatory is kind of a halfway house between hell and heaven where um, um, people even that are saved go and they have to uh, suffer for their sins. And when they finally suffer enough, they get to graduate into heaven. And so we'll talk about the doctrine of purgatory at length when we talk about uh, that section of the paragraph. So, You'll notice um, then on the first page the state of the bodies and souls of men after death, one B the state of their bodies after death, two be the state of their souls after death. Um, and so these are man's just a dipartite being. Uh, we're not tripartite. Um, you know, there are those who say that we're made of three distinct separable entities: body, soul, and spirit. Okay? Uh, there is no distinction between soul and spirit. They're just different words to describe the same immaterial substance. And I will prove that to you uh, as, as we go along. All sorts of nutty um, concepts of sanctification have been built on the notion that uh, we are tripartite beings, that we have our body, which is the lowest part. And we have our soul, which is the middle part. And then we have our spirit, which is the upper part. And the spirit relates to God. And, and, uh, and uh, the soul relates to the world around us. And, of course, the body is, is material. And, and um, so uh, I went through all of that as a young believer, unfortunately, and got sidetracked in, in many ways uh, with a wrong view of the nature of the makeup of man. So, anyway, we have bodies, we have souls, that's all we've got. Um, the soul, of course, or the immaterial part of man, has various functions. And, uh, you know, we have conscience, we have will, we have intellect, um, we have affections. Um, and so these are all various functions of uh, sometimes ascribed to the soul, sometimes to the spirit. Um, and so uh, while there may be Uh, some degree of of difference in function between the soul and the spirit Uh, in terms of labels. uh, They each describe um, a single unity, uh, and that's the immaterial part of man. The immaterial part of man is a unity. It's not divisible. So you can divide the soul from the body, but you can't divide the soul up into... Two separate parts, soul and spirit. Okay. All right, that leads us then to any questions on that paragraph? Okay. That leads us then to the second and the third paragraphs. Now, if you'll turn your page, um, you'll notice that I've lumped paragraphs two and three together under one major heading the state of the bodies and souls of men at the last day. Now you'll notice paragraph two starts out with the phrase at the last day. Obviously we've moved beyond what was being talked about in paragraph one. It says, it, it talks about the state of the living saints. It says at the last day, such of the saints as are found alive shall not sleep. That is, they won't die but they will be changed. That is, they will be glorified on the spot instantaneously. So the living saints who are alive when Jesus comes back will not go through the process of death like all the rest of us have with the exception of Elijah and Enoch. They didn't go through death, okay? Um, But they were instantly changed and uh, glorified body and soul together and taken to heaven. Um, and that's what will happen to the saints who are alive when Jesus returns. They're kind of a foreshadowing of that. All right. So it says, um, we will not sleep. It says, and then it says, and all the dead. Now the word all there indicates saved and unsaved. Okay. All the dead shall be raised up with the self same bodies and none other. So the body you have now, is the one you're gonna have forever. You're not gonna get a different one. Now, the one you have is gonna be fixed and changed and transformed, but it's still gonna be the same body. Okay? Because uh, the body is the object of redemption or judgment, uh, just as much as the soul is. Um, And we're going to talk about the importance of the body and uh, how that we are, are not uh, Gnostic in our understanding of the relationship between the spiritual and the material. See, the Gnostics thought the spiritual was the important part and the material was just trash. It was irrelevant. It was meaningless. Uh, God and the Bible don't see the material body in that fashion at all. Why do you think Jesus spent so much time healing people's bodies when he was here on earth? Because he was saying the body is the object of redemption as much as the soul is. Now he healed a lot of souls while he was here. I mean, time and again, people came to him and he says, he says, go in peace. Your faith has made you whole. Or he said to them, your sins have been forgiven you. Go in peace. Okay. So he um, healed people's souls and he healed people's bodies indicative of the fact that Um, he would redeem both. All right. So it says, uh, and the dead shall be raised up with the self same bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. So when we die, our body and soul is separated, whether we're saved or lost Uh, at the resurrection at the last day, the bodies of the, of the wicked and the bodies of the righteous will both be raised, both joined to their souls and they will both have, new bodies that is their bodies will have different qualities than they have now though they will still be material they will still be physical they will be suited for eternal existence so that the bodies of the damned will never die and the bodies of the righteous will never die okay now in paragraph 3 it talks about the bodies of the unsaved and the bodies of the saved. Paragraph 3 The bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor. The bodies of the just, by his Spirit, unto honor, to be made conformable to his own glorious body. So there is apparently going to be some difference between the bodies of the saved and the lost in terms of the qualities and the characteristics they possess. The one body will be raised to dishonor, and the other body will be raised to honor. And what precisely that dishonor and honor consists of, we'll look at when we look into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which discusses that subject. So we have a great deal of material before us, all very interesting and fascinating, very enjoyable. Um, And I think we're going to have a, a lot of fun going through this and excitement about what God is going to do for us and what he's prepared for us. But also we're going to be brought face to face with the unmitigated uh, and infinite horror of hell and judgment and damnation and what that looks like and the awfulness of that. And hopefully we'll be moved to humility and thankfulness uh, and praise and worship that we have been delivered from that. And also that it will motivate us to evangelize those who are lost, especially um, those whom we love. And uh, so, uh, anyhow, a a great chapter. All right. Any questions or observations that you would like to make at this point in time? Okay. Um, You'll notice on the last page of your handout, you have a, uh, a printed article on page three and the title of the article is Mary cry rejoice by and it was written by John Piper I think a lot of you know who John Piper is he's a Reformed Baptist preacher back east Um, and this is one of the finest articles I've ever read in my life about um, how we should view our circumstances and so uh... I want you all to read it, and uh, we'll discuss it together next week at the opening of our Sunday school class, all right? I had hoped to read it out loud today and to discuss it today, but um, we uh, have run out of time. But um, this article bears a great deal of thought and meditation and reflection with reference to your own circumstances. I I copied it out of World Magazine, and. um, I was just, um, I think in light of the, of the current election, which of course it addresses, uh, it provides um, you know, a buttress to what I said last Sunday uh, from Proverbs 21.1 and also from the book of Daniel. So I want to encourage you all to read it, to read it thoughtfully, reflectively, read it several times throughout the week. Um, think about how it applies to you, and uh, we'll talk about it some Um, next Sunday. Okay. All right. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your kindness in meeting our needs for salvation. And Lord, not just for deliverance from temporal difficulties and in wretchednesses, but Father, for an eternal state of blessedness and perfection and enjoyment where we shall be with Christ forever and in that state will enjoy the full blessings of the salvation he has provided without end. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for everlasting life. And that those who believe in Jesus shall not come into condemnation, but shall have everlasting life. Thank you for that terminology, Lord. We pray that you might help us to rejoice in and anticipate and be filled with peace and joy in believing as we anticipate the future. In Jesus' name, amen.